0: Hey brothers, this is Didact and we are back with another domain query, weapons of maths destruction. A very warm welcome to all of my long-time listeners and subscribers on Podbean, a very warm welcome to all of my regular subscribers from the website. And uh the second domain query in a week. Um this is due to a request from our boy MK who sent me an email uh, asking for some clarification on a recent very excellent discussion on the Duran between the two Alexes and a third Alex, which makes things very confusing, but Alex from Reportify. And uh, before I continue with that, may I just remind you, if you like this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please hit that subscribe button. If you like what you see on the website, please make sure you subscribe to my mailing list. If you like both, or even if you just don't want to subscribe to them, uh, but are more interested in live updates of geopolitics news, random musings, fun stuff, dog and cat videos, which of which we have quite a few, uh, hit the like uh, or hit the the, the link for my Telegram channel and go straight to that. Uh, MK is a follower of mine on Telegram. He and I interact regularly. He's a good dude. He is by, uh, background and nature. Well, we'll get into that, but, uh, I won't reveal too much about it. But he's a, he's a very, very smart guy and, uh, very handy with memes, actually. So we've got a very good community, as you can tell. On the interactions that I have, my readership and my subscriber base, as you can see, you know, it's a, it's a good tribe, a good bunch of people. And, uh, I think I may have mentioned MK is one of my Telegram subscribers. So, Uh, We'll get into the the sum and substance of his query uh, now. So, uh, it wasn't specifically a question he had, but he wanted me to break down some of what, or explain some of what Alex from Reportify was talking about in his discussion, his live chat with the Duran. And the, you'll see the the video link in the description box, or if you're on, um, if you're looking at it on my site, you'll see the actual video embedded in the post. But uh, the the gist of it is as follows, so uh, Alex from Reportify is to, as far as I can gather, and I haven't looked at his biography, I, I have no idea who he is, uh, I think this is the first time I've ever actually come across him, but he is a very financially literate trader who actually lives in China right now with an Eastern European wife, uh, which is a really interesting combination, I don't know how they make that happen, but anyway, and... He actively trades in the markets as an independent trader on his own, with his own capital. And he takes bets for and against different market movements. And he came on to the Duran. Normally, he talks about geopolitics with these guys. But this time, he came on to talk about what he's seeing in the financial markets. And he's saying, essentially, holy shit, this is the worst financial crash we've ever seen coming our way. And you know, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Oh yeah, you better believe it. Is essentially what he's saying. He's he's basically saying, prepare for the big one. Uh, you know that if you've ever had that feeling of dread as you're crawling up towards uh, the the peak of a roller coaster, uh, as you're going all the way up, and then just as you're about to go over the edge, and your stomach sort of drops away from you, that's kind of the situation he's describing right now and he's saying over the next uh 12 to 18 months things are going to get so bad so fast uh it is i mean it's going to hit people who are exposed like an absolute tsunami it's going to wipe them out and that is a terrifying uh set of predictions but he explained it in very mm, not easy-to-understand terms. And so, MK uh, wrote into to me and asked me to unpack it. So, let me start off by saying one thing, right up front. Every single thing Alex from Reportify said is true. I agree with every single thing he said in broad strokes. Every one of the things he said is correct. Now, where he gets things not wrong i'm not going to say wrong because that's not the right it's it's the it's the incorrect term but where he does the audience a, a little bit of a disservice perhaps is in failing to explain how things got to this point and why things are going wrong the way he describes them so that's my job in this podcast, and I'm going to try to do the best I can, because the thing to understand is financial derivatives are an extremely, and I mean extremely complex subject. I have a degree in pricing these things. Literally, I have a master's degree in pricing these things from an Ivy League school, and I still don't claim to be able to understand it in full. Uh, I understand the mathematics behind it reasonably well, but if you were to ask me to write out like a stochastic equation and apply, uh, you know... Ethos lemma to, to integrate the actual equation and come up with a closed form solution for something like a you know, Saber a stochastic alpha beta Rho Nu um volatility scheme. Uh yeah, you're looking at the wrong guy. I'm I don't have a PhD in mathematics, and a lot of PhDs in mathematics couldn't do that. So it's a very specialized subject that is at the same time extremely wide and diverse. Despite that, uh I am one of the few guys anywhere on earth that can claim to have sufficient knowledge and expertise to be able to unpack what Alex is saying. And I'm not trying to be braggadocious about this, this is not me beating my chest or anything, but if you look at my background, I am one of the very few people anywhere on earth, I mean there there are lots of us in terms of absolute numbers, there are thousands or tens of thousands of us who could do this, Uh, but... If you're looking for, A, someone with theoretical knowledge of how to price derivatives, which I have. B, actual practical experience of pricing these things on a trading desk, which I have. C, actual practical experience of pricing these derivatives on a sell-side desk, which I have. When I say sell-side, I mean in an investment bank which ultimately sells these derivatives to other players in the market. D, experience in energy markets specifically and knows what energy derivatives are and how they're priced and how they're different from regular derivatives. E, experience with fixed income derivatives like bonds, swaps, and derivatives on those objects. F, experience with FX swaps and FX derivatives. G, the ability to explain this stuff clearly and precisely and H, someone who actually lived through the financial crisis as it was happening on the ground in New York City at the time it happened, then that's a pretty damn small list of people. And I'm on it. Um, so is Alex. Well, he's he's, he's got quite a lot of those attributes. He doesn't. Maybe I don't. I don't know enough about his background to say he has all of them. I just don't know. But make no mistake, he's an extremely intelligent guy who knows what he's talking about and on these subjects he is completely correct okay let's unpack what he said in the first 55 minutes or so of the discussion with the duran and i went back i, I listened to it once earlier on this week and as i was outside today taking a walk you know for my taking my daily constitutional as it were uh, i listened to it again to make sure that i've captured the essence of it what is happening out there so alex from Reportify, talked about how independent traders in the market are seeing uh, banks and other financial institutions with very large exposures to what he calls insurance contracts. I think he didn't do a very good job of explaining this. In terms of derivatives, the simplest or the, the most basic derivatives you can imagine are futures and forward contracts. But these are just essentially saying in the future, at some point in the future, I'm going to buy or sell uh, this asset for this price. That's all they mean. They're, they're a linear relationship between the asset and the price. Now, in your head, try to visualize a graph, which is essentially just a diagonal line. And you have an x-axis and a y-axis. And you know, when I'm when I'm saying these things, keep in mind, the guy who asked these questions, MK, He's a very, very smart dude. I know his background, a little bit of his background. He's an aerospace engineer, uh, or an aeronautical engineer. Uh, I won't say any more than that, but bear in mind, he's a very smart kid. He's quite a bit younger than me. Uh, It's not difficult for the ordinary person to grasp this if you just keep a few basic principles in mind. And those of you who have a background in engineering or mathematics will be able to figure it out really quickly. Imagine an x-axis with a point on it, let's call it K, anywhere on the axis, it doesn't matter where it is except it can't be at zero. Imagine a vertical line cutting through the zero point going up. The x-axis measures the price of the underlying asset. K is the price that you agree to buy or sell that asset. The y-axis is the profit or loss you make on that contract at the time it expires. So every contract has a time to maturity or a, a, a length for which it is valid and at the end of that time you gain or you lose based on how the market performed. So let's say you want to buy let's take a simple example corn at uh, whatever it is. Uh, I have no idea what the price of corn per bushel is but let's say it's trading at a hundred dollars a bushel right now. And you expect because of a substantial Russian harvest and drought conditions in California and rapidly rising demand in China and the need for more pig feed in, I don't know, Argentina or something like whatever, or uh, cattle feed in Argentina, you expect corn prices in the United States to go up, but you expect corn prices in China to go down. So in the United States, you might say, okay, I want to buy, I want to buy a forward contract on corn at $104 a bushel, expiring in six months. That's a forward contract. And in China, you say, I want to buy a, I want to sell a forward contract on corn, uh, at $97 per bushel. Uh, now if you're buying a forward contract, the, Diagonal line on that graph that you just saw will cross through this point K at 104 And if you're selling it'll cross through that diagonal line on a downward slope at 97. Okay, so keep that in mind Whatever the price of corn ends up being at the end of six months will determine whether you win or lose all right at the end of six months if the price of corn is uh, 105 dollars per bushel in the United States you've made one dollar of profit on that contract per unit of measurement whatever that happens to be and I won't go too much more into detail than that but that's what happens if the price of uh, corn in China is 95 dollars a bushel you have made two dollars of profit per bushel for each contract you've bought or actually each contract you have sold rather uh, these are forward contracts. They're the most basic, simple derivatives imaginable. Options are a right to enter into... their right but not an obligation to enter into that same position at the end of a certain time at a certain price. So if you have an option to buy a bushel of corn at $104 per bushel at the end of six months then the payoff and what i'm describing in in this mental image is a payoff graph and you can go look up payoff graphs or options very easily to make this concrete but it's the option but it's the right but not the obligation to buy that object so your profit and loss means that you never lose more than your strike the 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 sort of point at which you struck the option and you get the maximum, in the case of a call option, uh, of the difference between the current price of corn versus the strike price and zero. If If you're buying a put option, which is the right to sell that same object at that price, the right but not the obligation, you get the difference between the strike price minus the current price and zero, the maximum of those two numbers. Keep that in mind, it's the maximum of these numbers. These are what are known as options, and they are again a pretty basic derivative instrument, but they're actually very hard to price, uh, for most people. I mean, you can price them in a spreadsheet uh, once you know the basic mathematics. There's a closed form formula called the Black-Scholes formula, which uh, Fisher Black and Myron Scholes came up with in 1976, and it won them the Nobel Prize in economics along with, uh, Bob Merton. The same Bob Merton who helped found long-term capital management, which blew up in 1998, thanks to its very ill-advised bets, uh, on rational markets in, during the time of the Asian financial crisis. And that's a whole other story. I, I never get tired of telling how I have some, uh, very, 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 very distant links to Bob Merton's family uh, through various ways. I mean, like literally it was one of those six degrees of separation stories. So uh, it's a long story and I won't go into it, but it's pretty funny. At least to me it is. Anyway, an option contract is something that big banks buy or sell. You know, and when I say big banks, I'm talking like Deutsche Banks, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Bank of America, etc. etc. They have the right to originate these contracts, meaning they can actually make them appear out of thin air and buy them and sell them in the market. And they can do so because they have what's called an ISDA agreement um, with which allows them as regulated traders to trade these derivative products. Um, now everyone else in the market, hedge funds for example, will Always go to a big bank to buy or sell these option contracts. So that's why these, these, these huge banks are called sell side institutions. These investment banks are in the business of selling these contracts to other players. So what is Alex from Reportify talking about when he says there are huge liabilities in the market that these insurance contracts are creating massive exposures on their balance sheets. Well, when it comes to things like stocks and bonds, these banks have very heavily leveraged positions in options. And they not only have options um, on the market, but other people have options on those options and other people have options on those options of options. There's a whole chain of these things going through, uh, which is an absolutely terrifying thought. Because if you've ever seen the movie, um, The Big Short, there's a great scene involving Selena Gomez and Richard Thaler, behavioral economist, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, now that movie really tries very hard to dumb down the financial crisis of 2008 in a way that people can digest and understand. But, most of its analogies are i think quite good uh and the one about how people make bets on the outcomes of other people's bets is i think a very appropriate metaphor for the current situation we're in we're in the exact same situation we were in 2008 but much worse and here's why when two thousand eight happened, and all of the various banks started, uh, all the various central banks rather started engaging in unconventional monetary policy, as they called it. That resulted in massive distortions to the world's banking systems. Everybody got used to cheap liquidity, cheap money, and they got used to the assumption that this cheap money would always be there. So it became very easy to get access to capital. Now, why did that happen? Because the central banks started hoovering up uh, all of the assets on other banks' balance sheets. They would basically go in there and buy treasury bonds. And they would buy mortgage-backed securities and agency bonds. And other uh, obligations of various kinds why was this a dangerous thing because it completely distorted the true cost of capital to the banks and therefore distorted the true cost of capital to everybody else in the economy when you buy when basically when you buy a bond uh or when when a big central bank buys a lot of bonds the prices for those bonds goes up but the yield therefore goes down the the most fundamental thing about bond mathematics is price goes up yield i.e. interest rate effective interest rate on the bond goes down uh what is that i mean why why is this important because when you look at um when you look at the 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 way a bond comes through like the way it's priced Uh, A bond is nothing more than an obligation. It's an IOU. It basically says, I promise to pay you, you know, if you write a $1 million bond at 5% coupon payments paid semi-annually, that means I will pay you back your $1 million that you've lent to me in, let's say it's a 10-year bond, in 10 years. And every six months between now and those, and 10 years from now, I will also pay you as interest. 5% of that 1 million, that is to say, uh, $50,000, every six months. And to get the effective yield to maturity, as it were, on that bond, what you would do is you would take the yield curve that exists in the market, which is to say the interest rates in the market today of risk-free debt, government debt, out to 10 years, and for every coupon, every cash payment that you get throughout the entire life of that bond, you would find the corresponding interest rate on that curve, and you would discount back to present value so that the price of the bond today is effectively a representation of all of those cash flows in present value terms. So what happens when, you, when the central bank buys a lot of those bonds is, the price of those bonds goes up, as I said, the yield to maturity goes down and the entire yield curve becomes artificially distorted. So it the long end of the yield curve goes down a long way. And that gives people a false impression of money, the cost of money in the real economy. So people start making investments in things they shouldn't be investing in. And all of that money that the banks get, because obviously the central bank is paying these banks cash, For the bonds, right? The bonds, the the banks are flooded with cheap money. That money has to go somewhere. They have to put it into something. What do they put it into? They put it into derivative contracts. They're basically making money from money. Now you begin to see the scale of the problem because all of these banks have written options on things that aren't real. They've written options on funny money. They've written options on projects and companies that aren't real. They've written option contracts on things that don't exist. And the independent traders, like this guy Alex is talking about, they're looking at this scenario and they're going, oh my god. They're looking at the, the true nature of the economy. They're seeing you know, all sorts of economic indicators flashing red. And they're saying, shit's about to blow up. And it's terrifying. And it means that the biggest banks in the world are exposed with their balance sheets because they've loaded up their balance sheets with all sorts of junk. And because these banks are able to operate as fractional lenders, meaning they, they only have to keep a percentage of their deposits that, you know, they get from you and me. If you have a checking account at a bank, then you are essentially giving the bank a loan. They are borrowing from you. I mean, that's literally how it's recorded. By accounting standards, that's literally what it means. A deposit is a liability for the bank. They owe you that money. But they can then legally turn around and lend that money out, and they can lend multiples of that money out to other people in the form of mortgages. That, for them, is an asset because other people owe them money. So by definition, it's an asset on their balance sheets. So they will go out and lend people money. Each of those individual mortgages represents a lifetime of cash flow payments, which they discount back to present value using that distorted yield curve. And then they go out and they bundle up lots of these mortgages into securitized products, these agency bonds, basically. So that the the government agencies in the United States, they will buy a lot of these mortgages and uh, sell them out as agency bonds which represent the amalgamated cash flows from all of these mortgages like all of these mortgages of a particular type they all get collected into one big mortgage bond and that gets issued out in the market and then on top of that somebody issues uh a uh like a, a mortgage-backed security uh based on that agency bond or a callable swap on that agency bond or an option on that bond or a collateralized debt obligation god help us on that bond um, or as as uh, became clear after the the crash a collateralized tranche opportunity uh, as you see at the end of the big short they show that up on the screen So what does all this mean? It means there's a huge, colossal market in derivatives. As Alex said, um, the total size of the world economy is $105 trillion nominal. And if you look at the, um, if you look at the total size of the derivatives market, it's like seven times that. So for every dollar of actual goods and services produced by the world economies, there are seven times as many dollars of funny money floating out there, backed by what? Pixie dust, basically, pixie dust. Um, that alone does not even tell you the full scale of the problem because the GDP figures for the United States and all the Western economies, are, are they're garbage, they're fiction, they're nonsense. They're absolute crap. they they're, they're accounting trickery designed to make these countries look bigger and better than they are. As I've said before, I mean on my Telegram channel and on uh, uh, one of my voice message updates. The true size of the US economy is not 25 trillion dollars. It's probably less than 12 trillion at this point once you strip out the lack of a manufacturing base and all of the problems with debt and the the you know the the bit of the economy that makes money for money, which is to say the fire economy, finance, insurance, real estate. And all of the problems that you have with uh, personal debt and corporate debt and the immense overhang of federal debt and deficit spending that finances all this craziness. Once you strip all of that out, it comes to about, very rough guess, 12 to $14 trillion. And you look at the Chinese economy, it's a hell of a lot bigger than that. It's easily double that size because of just the sheer manufacturing power of china if you look at the russian economy it's not five trillion dollars in purchasing power parity terms it's certainly not 1.8 trillion dollars in nominal terms i mean that's garbage that number is ridiculous but russia's economy is probably closer to seven or eight trillion dollars in terms of total actual output if you look at india's economy i mean yeah india is a shithole country yes it is it's got serious problems but the size of its domestic market is colossal, it's gigantic. But all of these economies have real stuff behind them. The Western economies don't. They have derivatives piled on top of derivatives, piled on top of derivatives. So you now have the situation of excessive concentration of very, very tightly uh, bundled up risk. And this goes back to a very, very good book by a chap named Rick Bookstaber. Called A Demon of Our Own Design, which I remember reading back in, I think it was 2009, thereabouts, early 2009, in which he was trying to explain the root causes of uh, the global financial crisis. And he talked about how a tightly coupled system, and engineers will understand this, a tightly coupled system often runs very efficiently, where all the parts really, you know, they're, they're finely tuned to mesh together and They're they're exactly designed to to sit together in a in in tight, congruent harmony. But if there's no slack in that system and one of the pieces goes wrong, the entire system collapses. That is the Western financial system today, where everything is very tightly bound together. There are a huge number of linkages across everything. If you look at Bank A, they will have option contracts written with Hedge Fund 1. Hedge Fund 1 will also have derivative contracts written out with insurance company uh, Alpha. And insurance company Alpha will have bonds sitting with Bank A. Bank A will have part of its balance sheet lent out to Bank B. Bank B will have insurance contracts sitting with reinsurance company uh, Aleph, let's say. And insurance company Aleph will be selling insurance contracts to insurance company uh, Alpha, and so on and so forth. It goes all around in a circle. And this interconnected web of relationships means that any single failure point anywhere in the system will drag down everybody else which is what we're seeing now with the uh, bank collapses in the United States. The Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Silver Silver Lake, whatever it was, Silver Something Bank. Um, these banks collapsed. Why? Because bond prices started cratering. Why did, uh, yeah, bond prices started cratering. Why did they start cratering? Because the Federal Reserve had to raise interest rates to deal with serious, severe inflation. Inflation, recorded inflation in Western countries was supposedly, uh, 8 to 10%. In reality, it was well north of 20% for most countries. In the United States, it was easily 20%. In Britain, it was at least 20%. In the Baltics, it was probably 40%. Again, you know, the inflation's, there are three, there are three figures which you cannot believe coming out of any government. In the West, at least. GDP, unemployment, inflation. They're garbage. They're crap. When you deal with those figures, you're dealing with accounting trickery. You're not dealing with actual data. So, these economies have serious problems. Now, they created these problems themselves and they exacerbated them by sanctioning Russia, as I've constantly said for the last 18 months, the world's commodity superpower. You cannot sanction a country that rich with $75 trillion in oil, natural gas, you know, Iron, Uranium, uh, Aluminium, uh, Tin, Lumber, Coal, uh, Wheat, Corn, you name it, on the ground, under the ground, in the sea. You cannot sanction a country that big with that much stuff and not expect it to have serious consequences for the rest of the world. So that's the situation we're in. Now, because of the inflation, reaching the levels that it did. The Federal Reserve and the other central banks in the West had to stop their asset purchases. They had to stop this extend and pretend nonsense where they kept buying bonds and kind of depressing interest rates and they had to let interest rates rise. They had to do it. So now you've got a situation where interest rates are on their way up. That means the average mortgage is going to get much more expensive. And Alex pointed out that a lot of mortgages in the United States and in the West are adjustable rate mortgages. Why? Because they're attractive. They they get they sucker people in with low interest rates to begin with, and then those interest rates reset. This is exactly what we saw before 2008. Exactly the same thing. 2006 was boom time in the real estate market in the States. And it was boom time because lots of people rushed in. They saw the cheap money. They said, yes, I can Uh, own my own home. I can finance at 2% mortgage rates for 30 years. Well, no, they're not 30 years. You can finance at 2% mortgage rates for two years. And then the mortgage rates, which they didn't tell you, they didn't talk, they didn't tell people to fine print because why would they? Lending standards were so lax. Nobody gave a crap. They didn't tell you those rates would reset to 4% or 5% or 7% even in two to four years time. They didn't tell people that. And so lots of people signed on for these so-called subprime mortgages. And that blew up in people's faces starting in uh, middle of 2007, extending into early 2008, when a lot of these mortgages reset and the banks saw rising delinquencies. Those delinquencies affected the value of the mortgage-backed securities, which they then... Uh, Basically, the, the price of those MBS, MBS bonds started to collapse. The CDOs attached to those MBS bonds started to see serious losses. And eventually, it went all the way up the chain to the point where uh, the credit default swaps uh, on these products kicked in. And a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the banks that weren't hedged suddenly realized, holy crap, we've got a problem. And several of them went under. And we saw the the global financial crisis unfold as it did. So have things improved or changed since then? No, they haven't. They've gotten worse. Here's why. Yes, lending standards have tightened. Yes, the banks are under a lot more supervision. Yes, they have a lot more regulatory red tape to fill out. Yes, they've got to be more careful in whom they lend to. Yes, single-name CDSs are banned in the Western world. Uh, what does that mean? It means you can't actually take out a, a CDS IE an insurance contract on the credit risk of an individual company. You can only do it through index uh, CDX uh, trades, which is to say credit default indices, which are supposedly less dangerous because you have all of these, you know, companies of a certain grade like of, of debt amalgamated into one. I can assure you all that does is mask the risk. That's all it does. I mean, I've worked with credit default index option traders, really, really smart guys. Uh, But they will tell you these credit indices, they have companies drop in and out of them pretty quickly on a regular basis. And all that happens is the old CDX index rolls off and the new one comes on with the new company attached. But, you know, those old companies are still ticking along. And yet, you know there has been a default in the market. Have you been protected from it? No, not really, uh, because you couldn't hedge the actual risk. You had to hedge a proxy of the risk. So you've got all of these problems coming up. You've got a very tightly interconnected derivatives market that affects every institution in the financial services industry. You have interest rates going up because they have to go up because of the sheer idiocy of Western policymakers. You have mortgage markets Going into meltdown. I mean, literally meltdown in the United Kingdom is happening already. The mortgage market in the United Kingdom is collapsing. And you'll see this in the Financial Times. If you open it up, they're literally saying the mortgage market is collapsing. Oh my God. What do we do? Uh, you're going to start seeing it in the US as well, where people are realizing I can't afford a mortgage. I don't want to buy a mortgage. Well, the mortgages are the lifeblood of a lot of the residential, like retail banks. Uh, if they don't get the mortgage income coming in, the big banks, the the institutional banks, don't get the sweet, juicy payments and the, and the, uh, the fees that come from issuing the securities associated with those mortgages. And all of that is before we get to the energy market, which Alex also talked about. Now, again, I have some understanding experience of these markets. Energy markets are really interesting because they're very different from... Um, fixed income or equity markets, where in a fixed income market or an equity market, you, well, in a fixed income market specifically, uh, you don't often have to take delivery, like physical delivery of the thing that you're trading, unless you're trading, um, TBAs, which I won't go into, but they're essentially like, um, how do I put it? They're, they're essentially like, if you've ever been to a diamond auction and you, you are assured by the diamond broker that the bag of diamonds that you're looking at contains diamonds all of a specific grade, a specific cut, a specific clarity, a specific quality, and you bid on those bags of diamonds, you know, you don't know whether or not you're actually getting what you get, but there's a trust factor involved. So, uh, you get those bags of diamonds in, and then when you actually have the bag of diamonds, you can open it up and see what's in it. And they should, by rights, be exactly what the, the diamond broker said. The auction house said it was going to be. That's kind of what a TBA is, uh, where the, you get a bag of mortgages. And in that bag, you'll, you'll, you'll find, you know, thousands and thousands of mortgages all of roughly the same type and same you know interest rate and loan value and loan to value ratio and uh term and 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 prepayment risk and single mortality risk and so on and you know lots of technical details but with energy markets you actually have to take physical delivery of the stuff so if you buy uh i don't know 10,000 barrels of crude oil on the forward market, you're going to get, turning up at your doorstep, 10,000 barrels of actual crude oil, Brent crude oil. It's going to happen. So you have to be careful about rolling in and out of your trades uh, because otherwise you will end up with a super tanker showing up at your doorstep, which is going to be quite a feat if you live, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the continental United States, uh, saying, hey, you paid for all of this oil. Where do you want me to put it, buddy? That's, that's actually going to happen. But in general, uh, companies involved in the oil and natural gas markets will look at the forward curve of prices for their, for their product. And they will know what the market thinks going out to up to five years ahead. So every month there is a contract and the, there, are, there are specific terms for the, the energy market. There are nearbys. Uh, the the nearbys determine the um, the month out of that particular contract, and so the the first nearby is the next calendar month, the delivery day for the next calendar month. So a second nearby, you know, second calendar month, so on and so forth. So the first nearby right now, we're in October, will be November delivery. Second will be December, and so on and so forth. And they go out sixty months. Uh, you can you can in theory find. Um, Contracts that go out even later than that, but they're very illiquid meaning they're very very infrequently traded So it's impossible really to make a market on them and you can just charge like people will charge ridiculous prices on those That's why that's part of what got Enron into trouble actually because they were marking power contracts you know, 10 years out in the future the power market like You can't do that in the power market the power market is like you'd be lucky if you can get derivatives contracts going one year out in the future that make any sense um, so anyway what Alex is talking about with respect to gas markets is this, if you look at the price of natural gas in the United States right now, let's take a look at Henry Hub natural gas because that's the most liquid uh, on the NYMEX, so the New York uh, Mercantile Exchange. And if you want to look at Henry Hub uh, natural gas uh, futures. So these are traded on the CME which was acquired by um, NYMEX uh, some time ago, but uh If you look at the latest price of, um, natural gas, it's about $3 per mm mmbtu. Uh, what does that mean? Millions of British thermal units. I don't know why Americans insist on using these stupid units, but you know, they they do everything the wrong way. So, including bombing countries. So, yeah, what can I say? Um, but a contract for a single option on a forward contract Uh, well, the forward contract itself is denominated in 10,000 NMBTU. So one contract, if, if you're buying, you know, that, uh, contract, let's say $3 per NMBTU, uh, the, the, the size of a single contract is 10,000 of those. So you're paying, uh, $30,000 for one unit of that contract. Okay? There are options on these things. And those options allow you to uh, enter into that contract at delivery time without, you know, you don't necessarily have to take physical delivery. So you don't have, a, you know, a, a fleet of tanker trucks showing up your, uh, at your doorstep. The Russians and the Saudis are very, 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 very experienced in these markets. They know how they work. I know because I have dealt with, uh, I won't go into details, but let's just say I have dealt with something like Gazprom, in the past a long time ago these are very smart people they know what they're doing so they trade natural gas and oil way out in the future and they know what the dynamics are because it's a physical product they know what the supply and demand dynamics are and they know that natural gas is not going to be worth three dollars per mbtu in the united states at henry hub louisiana in six months time they know it's going to be worth a damn sight more than that. And they've prepared accordingly. However, everyone else in the market seems to think, no, no, everything's going to be fine. It'll be $3 per MMBT. No, 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 it's not. The actual suppliers of this stuff are taking a long position, meaning a buy position uh, on this stuff. They're, they're, they're saying, uh, we think it's going to go up in value over time. And we think... It's going to be priced at not $3 per MBTU, but more like $5 or $6 per MBTU. If that happens and natural gas prices go up to that level, a whole bunch of companies around the world, particularly the Western world, are going to find themselves in a very severe liquidity crunch because they priced their contracts out to their customers at $3 per MBTU. They're now having to buy the stuff from the people who supply it at five dollars per MMBTU. they're supplying millions and millions of MMBTUs of gas to their customers everywhere in the US, in Europe, in the UK and they don't have control of the physical product but the Russians do. So inevitably what's going to happen is the Russians are going to say it's a it's a seller's market we can charge you whatever the hell you, we want. you bombed your own pipeline you bombed Nord Stream. you blew up the connector that would have provided endless pretty much sheet gas between russia and germany so why shouldn't we charge you three times what we were charging you before you're asking us to reroute flows that were going to china where we're getting a fair price for our natural gas but you idiots decided you wanted to screw yourselves why would we get in the way of course we're going to charge you Five or six or seven or ten dollars per minute BTU, and now you begin to understand the problem because if it's a cold winter and it looks like it's going to be, the power and heat providers, energy providers in the West are screwed, they're going to go bankrupt, and that means an awful lot of people are going to be left without power or heat. So, no matter where you look in the West, you're looking at a situation where you have. Again, I keep coming back to this. Tightly interconnected systems. A situation created by people who have no understanding of a real economy. Who think that you can just print your way out of trouble. Who think that you can uh, price your way out of any issue. Who think m- you can make money from money whenever you want. And they're going to use this as an excuse to go back to the same old extend and pretend tactics. But the contagion is not going to hit the rest of the world equally. As Alex pointed out, the people who were most exposed in 2008, and even as late as last year, are now probably bulletproof. Russia has decoupled from the Western financial system, largely. Their banking system does not depend on Western investment. It depends on Russian uh, savers and investors depositing at Russian banks. It doesn't depend on Western capital markets. Their debt... The, the sovereign debt they issue, they used to issue euro bonds, uh, coupons denominated in euros. They don't do that anymore. They issue, they don't issue OFZs anymore, whatever the, uh, the, the Russian term for it is. I, I forget exactly. Who it. Um, OFZ, Russian bonds. Uh, these are... Uh, ah, yeah. Right, so, an OFZ, uh, from the Russian perspective, is federal Federalno-Balzheimer, uh, meaning, you know, federal uh loan obligations, quite literally. And um they don't issue them. They don't issue the Euro denominated bonds anymore at all. They don't they don't bother with them. Uh, they don't uh issue them internationally, but they do issue them domestically. And they have no problem issuing them domestically at all. So the Russian government doesn't need the West. Uh they've banned the use of SWIFT Banned it for intra-Russian bank transfers. Think about what that means. The entire Russian banking system no longer needs SWIFT. They have their own alternative. The SPFS, uh, Sistema Peri Finansovich uh, Um, literally system for transmission of financial messages. The Russians are very literal people. Uh the Chinese have their SIPs, cross-border inter- interbank payment system. And SIPs is actually quite a lot smaller than SFPS, and SFPS is like an order of magnitude smaller than SWIFT. Uh, they're nowhere close to volumes, but the point is they're able to insulate themselves. In 2008, the Russian banking system was heavily leveraged and exposed to Western capital flows. Not anymore. Not anymore. The same is true for India, and the same is true for China, which is deleveraging its US dollar holdings. The same is true for the rest of the BRICS countries. They're all getting rid of US Treasuries because they're sick and tired of dealing with an American government, and an American system that does not live up to its word, that does not do what it says on the tin it's supposed to do, i.e. provide a stable unit of financial transactions globally that promises to keep other people's money safe. It doesn't do that anymore. The US dollar is now a toxic asset So, when Alex says we're looking at the mother of all crashes coming our way, he's right. And it's going to happen soon. And the people who are going to be most exposed are the ones with debts. Who are paying debt. Anyone who's got student loan debt, you can't get out of that. You can't escape student loan debt. You can't just declare bankruptcy and get rid of it. It Doesn't work that way. Student loan debt, I mean, it's, it's a particularly evil kind of debt. You can't default on student loans the way you can with mortgages or credit card debt. You can't default on them. And that market is like, a, there's more than a trillion dollars of student loan debt in the United States alone. You can't get out of a lot of these debt overhangs that exist for the average person. The average person has very little liquidity in the United States. They, you know, most people don't have even a thousand dollars to pay for an emergency bill. Their mortgages are going to go up from, as Alex said, $1200 a month to $3800 a month potentially in some cases that's going to bankrupt a lot of people it's already bankrupting people in the united kingdom when it's happened here uh well not here but in um in in the uk uh when it happened in europe it's already taking place all across the developing uh, the developed world i should say meanwhile if you look over at russia Their domestic lending market is actually quite strong. It's overheated to the point where the the Russian central bank had to pull things back. Uh, There was a time when you could get a home loan for 10 million rubles, or no, actually the 7 million rubles at 10% for 30 years. Fixed rate mortgage. Fixed rate. 30 years. 10%. Uh, You can't really do that in the West anymore. Even though a fixed rate mortgage is the one that makes the most sense, it's not possible when interest rates are 7%. Mortgage rates are 7% or 8%. You can't do that. So the people who are the most heavily leveraged are the ones who are going to take it right in the shorts when the crash comes, and it will come. We're already seeing the strains. We're already seeing the signs. What advice does Alex have for people? Well, get into hard assets. Don't don't owe debt to anyone. Uh, and I agree completely with that advice. I absolutely 100% endorse it. Now, I want to make this very, very, very clear. I am not a financial advisor. I have no business telling other people what to invest in. I am not here to tell you to invest in anything. Do not take my word for it. Do not listen to me uh, and just follow blindly what I tell you. Do your homework. I am not here to tell you what to invest in. That's not my job. I completely disown any responsibility for that because I am not a financial advisor. So I'm not trying to tell you what to do i'm not giving you advice i'm just saying this is what i think could happen those people who are invested in stocks and bonds i don't necessarily think those are going to crater completely i do think there are a lot of great companies out there where you know people are just going to keep buying their products no matter what uh but they're going to be in a lot of trouble if they have weak balance sheets for sure I don't think people should avoid the stock market. I disagree with that strongly. I mean, in the long term, the, the data is, the data are absolutely unequivocal on this. In the long run, meaning 20 years or longer, the stock market is the single greatest generator of wealth we've ever seen. And why is that? Because in the long term, a stock is not a gambling instrument. It is a an ownership share of a company. You're literally an owner of a company. And when you're investing in companies that are well-managed, responsibly run, that make great products, that do good things for people, that's a winning long-term proposition. So do not believe those who think stocks are a, uh, are a, a gambling machine. I've, I've, I've exploded this myth before. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. Um, but get out of companies that are, are I think, people should get out of companies that have weak balance sheets. That's, you know, just my opinion. Again, just my opinion. And I have to be very careful about this because, legally speaking, I cannot give anyone uh, investment advice and I don't want to. Nothing I say should be taken for gospel. You should do your own homework. Uh, those people who are invested in, der- or who are thinking of getting into derivatives, don't do it. I think you shouldn't do it. Why? Look, I have a degree in mathematics in this exact subject. I know the stochastic calculus behind it. I understand how an option should be priced. I'm telling people with that background, it's a bad idea. Because if you don't understand where things can go wrong and how you can get ripped off in that market, you'll get screwed. You just you will get completely screwed. There are people with 10 times your knowledge, 100 times your knowledge with instant pricing available at their fingertips, who will take the other side of your trade and they will screw you. And they'll have every right to screw you because you're an idiot and you're a rube and you don't know what you're doing. Don't go into home loans, I think. Don't um, buy a house unless you can afford to pay for it outright in cash. Uh, I think, again, just my opinion, just my opinion, uh, because that... The value of that asset could disappear in a, in a, in a flash, given the way mortgage markets are going. And generally try to stick to hard assets. Again, that's my opinion. I think you should do that. Um, gold and silver are, I think, good investments. Uh, precious metals are, I think, good investments. Land is, I think, a good investment. But only if you can pay for it outright, not if you need to get a loan for it. Because credit is going to become, believe me, very difficult to obtain in the near future. Uh, those people who have real hard assets will prosper. Because not only will they have a hedge against inflation, but they'll have a hedge against um, uh, lending as well. People will want what they have. And scarcity is going to hit in ways that we can't really predict. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, this is... Prepper, Doomsday, Armageddon, everything's going to stop working. No, that's not going to happen. That didn't happen in 2008. I don't believe it'll happen this time. Just my opinion. But it is going to get very, very bad in some places very quickly. Uh, I would expect the financial centers of London, uh, New York, uh, Frankfurt, Paris, a couple others, Tokyo, to take really serious hammering uh, because... A lot of those people there who live in those cities are going to find themselves out of a job. And it's going to have very severe knock on effects throughout the economy. It's going to be, it's going to be a difficult time. And companies that have a lot of leverage on their balance sheets look out because those debts are going to get called in very quickly. And it's a very, very scary situation. Look, guys, I wish I had good news to offer. I wish I had, uh, like Alex says I wish I could show you a pot of gold at the rainbow or at the end of the rainbow or whatever the thing people need to understand is we are coming to the end of 15 years of amazing stupidity uh and more than that we're coming to the end of 50 plus years of unlicensed unlimited unbacked money printing in the United States you and I are looking at The live, real-time destruction of the American empire. I mean, America is an empire, whether we like it or not, whether Americans admit it or not, it's an empire. And it's the empire that never ended. It's the empire of lies. Uh, it is the new evil empire, and it richly deserves destruction. But a lot of good people are gonna get hurt in the process, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I could well be one of them. I, I have no doubt, actually, I will, at some point, because of where my financial assets are, my portfolio will take a big hit from what's coming. The difference is uh, I have a long-term view of things and I know that I'm not going to touch that pot of money for many, many years. But those people who thought they were going to retire at 55 and enjoy a comfortable existence like their boomer parents did, no, not going to happen. I myself, I think I'm going to be working until I'm 70, 75 easily. Uh, I don't believe I will get an early retirement. I don't believe I will... Uh, have a comfortable life beyond, you know, like just average daily comforts. I don't think that's going to happen. I think We're in for some very very hard times to come not impossible not Not insurmountable But difficult it's going to be very tricky and if you're working in the financial services sector my recommendation to you as someone who's been in that sector uh, and suffered three layoffs And suffered endless heartbreak in the process is get out. Get out while you can. If you're looking to get in, don't. Just don't. It's not worth it. I assure you, it's not worth it. Do anything else. Figure out how to farm your own land, grow your own food. Um, live a simple life. Don't let anybody own you through debt. Uh, avoid the, you know, the fancy pants and lollipops. Stick to what is true. Stick to what is good, beautiful and true stick to god stick to jesus stick to the bible stick to the, the 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 wisdom in proverbs and psalms and you'll get through this we will come through it to a much better fairer more stable world order where people aren't leveraged to the gills and people aren't insisting on driving around in the latest shiny toy and people don't need the latest iphone i mean my phone is it's a Chinese phone. It's three years old. It's still fantastic. I'm very, very happy to use it. And I will continue using it for probably another year or two. Uh, I've had PCs that I've owned for four plus years, right? So don't, don't feel like you need the newest, like my TV over there is, is, oh, 11 years old. My Xbox. Well, okay. I need to replace those, but I've got old stuff. Okay. And I'm happy with it. Be happy with what you have. Don't, see the need to go chasing after everything in a consumerist mindset. Um, I'm not by any means advocating communism. People who've followed me for a long time know damn well my attitude to a communist, which is basically they should be shot on sight as a form of national defense, given what communists get up to. Uh, but, you know, I do admit that the consumer-driven society we've created is very, very dangerous, and that's what's gotten us into trouble. Uh, in the West. Anyway, uh, that was quite a long podcast, I know. Um, it might as well have been actually a, a didactic mind episode. Maybe I'll make it one, I don't know, uh, because uh, it is an hour long. But I hope this was informative. I hope this was useful. MK, I hope this answered your question and uh, gave you some color and detail into uh, what Alex was talking about I welcome questions on this one. I I mean, I've barely scratched the surface on this topic. It's an enormously complex topic. Uh, but I hope people got something out of it. And, uh, yeah, I will see you guys on the next one. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your time. As always, this has been, uh, well, I started with a domain query. It'll probably be a didactic mind, but didactic mind, uh, episode 114, 13. I forget, whatever. Um, weapons of Math's Destruction, and this is Didact, over and out.